Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass. Nearly 10 years had passed since the Dursleys had woken up to find their nephew on the front step, but Privet Drive had hardly changed at all. The sun rose on the same tidy front gardens and lit up the brass number four on the Dursleys' front door. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. When I was 13, I went to boarding school. I had chosen to go, but it was a very different world. My family was far away, and it was a house full of testosterone-fueled teenage boys aged 13 to 18, and I was sharing a dormitory room. And as I walked in with my bags ready to unpack, I looked around the room. The three other boys had already settled in, and next to their beds on the walls were these posters of Corn and Slipknot and all these kind of rock bands from the early 2000s and next to them are you know half naked women posters and as I settled in I hung up my Bridget Jones's diary poster and put my Agatha Christie books in a row and and laid out my smelling colorful pens to write with in my Bridget Jones's diary replica diary and I just felt so different and disconnected and really alone and wondered how I would make it through the next five years of living in this context. And I think of that story as I read chapter two of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, because I think that theme of loneliness is so familiar and so well remembered from that time for me that I can see it all over this chapter. And so much of the experience that I had of feeling so on my own, so lonely, is something that I really read in this text at this point. And that's the theme that we're going to read through in this chapter together. Before we explore more of that theme, we're going to do our weekly 30-second competition recap of the chapter that we're reading. And Casper, last week, I thought you were being generous and being all ladies first, chivalrous. But then I realized that by making me go first, what you were actually doing was cheating. Total strategy. So why don't we rotate who goes first every week and you go first and we'll see who can do a better 30-second recap. Prepare to be schooled, Vanessa Sultan. Ready, steady, go. Go. 
Ten years later, not much has changed in Privet Drive. The Dursleys live with uh, Harry Potter under the stairs in a cupboard. And it's Dudley's birthday. So Harry has to get up and make Dudley's breakfast. And um, he's frying eggs and bacon. And Dudley's very sad um, about a whole bunch of things because he doesn't get the presents he wanted. And um, But he is going to go to the zoo. But Harry has to come because Mrs. Fig broke her leg. And there's no one else to give the Harry to. So he comes to the zoo and there's a snake. And he talks to the snake by magical thing. And the glass disappears and the snake chases the Dursleys. Oh, nailed it. <laughs> nailed it? Zoltan, you ready? <laughs> yes. Three, two, one, go. So Harry lives under the stairs in a cupboard, and it's Dudley's birthday. And due to circumstances beyond their control, it becomes very clear that Harry has to go with the Dursleys and Dudley's friend to the zoo. At the zoo, Harry identifies with a snake, and suddenly, accidentally, magically maybe, some that's... The glass between the snake and Harry and the Dursleys disappears, and all hell breaks loose, and Harry gets into big trouble. Boom. You got, you, you got time, girl. I have girl. time to burn, but you got everything you needed. <laughs> Vanessa Zoltan, begging for your points with her extra five seconds. <laughs> if you want, you can go online and vote for who did a better job. Just so you know, if you don't vote for me, I will know that you have self-identified as an Anglophile and that you just hate America. Yes. Make America Great Britain again. <laughs> now that we have our plot sorted out so detailed and beautifully, let's dive into this theme of loneliness. I thought we should start with the snake who we meet in this chapter, the, the boa constrictor in the zoo, because in so many ways, the, the snake is a sort of mirror character for Harry in that both of them are separated from their place of origin in some way. You know, we know that this the snake is, or its parentage at least, is from Brazil. And we also know that it's physically kept to a place, just like Harry is in, in the cupboard. And that both of them have this longing to, to be somewhere else. And we get that a little bit in Harry's dreams. But the snake communicates with Harry somehow magically and just wants to go home. Even though it's never been, it's been bred in captivity, it has this longing to, to be elsewhere. Absolutely. There's even a parallel of how the Dursleys treat the snake and how the Dursleys treat Harry, right? The Dursleys only see them for the potential utility. The and snake, their danger. Right. And, and their danger. So it's as soon as the snake isn't entertaining Dudley, Dudley is like, Dad. God, the snake is broken. And whenever Harry doesn't behave in exactly the way that the Dursleys want, he's just useless and tossed aside. And yeah, there's this like we don't totally understand how you behave. And so you are a vague threat. And I love that the glass that separates them literally vanishes. So that uh, intimacy of experience becomes a physical thing and that their experience is literally unified in, in some way. What's interesting, right, is it's their recognition in one another and the fact that they are no longer lonely or alone, that maybe is what makes the glass vanish. I wonder if this is the first time, literally the first time in his life, that Harry is feeling a connection with any other living creature. He doesn't remember his parents. He has certainly never felt recognized. We hear about how alone he is, how he has no friends. I, I think the chapter ends with... Yeah, at school, Harry had no one. And he certainly doesn't have the Dursleys. And he he's never allowed to leave the house. The only place he goes is Mrs. Figs. And he just has to look at pictures of cats there. He's not interacting with anything there that means anything to him. So I think that we're led to believe that this is the first time that he is looking into the eyes of something and recognizing a connection between him and another living creature. I wonder when you really connect with someone, right? The distance between the two of you for a moment can vanish. Even the interaction between the snake and Harry is nonverbal. The snake rises up and winks at Harry before Harry's has said a word. And so I love that the, it, it's an unspoken intimacy that maybe neither of them 
could have the words to describe the experience that they have, but there isn't a recognition of the other's experience also. So that that like sort of wink really reminded me of the way that oppressed peoples have to communicate through these subversive ways in order to say, like, are you a part of the community too? Wink, wink. And I just thought about, you know, the ways that we hear the gay rights movement talk about Stonewall. It used to have to be that it was like a stolen glance across a room that two gay people could identify one another. And now we've created these spaces for them to speak up. Well, transition from that invisible, just person to person connection to it became a movement and a liberating force when that became overt. Right. Which, you know, I, I love that imagery because it's something we can absolutely trace onto the story as we go forward. But right now it's it's hidden, you know, just like these moments of unexplained magic in Harry's life. It's repressed. It's dangerous. And it's it's attacked. Vernon comes in and takes Harry out and there's violence projected onto it. But we're about to move to a place in which this is allowed and allowed to be out in the open. Thinking of that theme of loneliness for Harry specifically, what strikes me is that even though he is so alone, and this may be his first interaction of recognition, at least, if not familiarity, that he is remarkably wholesome. There's no nasty behavior. He's not, you know, torturing ants. Harry seems to be empathetic. He asked the snake, what was it like there? You know, thinking that he's from Brazil. He doesn't seem wounded in a way. And I think it's remarkable that, that Harry illustrates that difference between being alone and being lonely. And I wonder if that's because you know, he doesn't know any better. Or if, you know, there's some sort of protective magic that extends not only to the house which he lives in, but to his being, to his soul, perhaps. I do think Harry is in a constant stage of low threat. But we do get a sense, there are just these stories again and again, of magic seems to interfere whenever anything really threatening is about to happen. So certainly his glasses are broken because he's been punched several times, but his nose doesn't seem to be broken because he's been punched so many times, right? There's a a line there. And the few times that magic has sort of intervened in his life has been when he has been threatened. Dudley and his gang are chasing him. He Harry means to jump over a hedge, ends up on the roof of the school. Petunia is going to shear his hair in like the most mortifying way possible where it's, you know, shaved up top but leaves the bangs to cover the scar. It's literally the worst haircut ever. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's vicious. It's just malicious. Um, but his hair magically grows back overnight. So I think that Harry does walk through the world as an anointed one. It, it's horrible, the circumstance that he lives in, but he does just seem to be protected. What I love for Harry in this chapter is is the role of dreams. Mm-hmm. The dreams that he has as we read forward, those dreams are going to become really, really important. And already they play a sort of promising role. And, you know, Harry had dreamed and dreamed of some unknown relation coming to take him away. So that, that, there is some longing there. And knowing that he belongs elsewhere, he hasn't given up hope that that world will come back to bring him home. That seems to be important that he hasn't lost hope of belonging. It is interesting, right, that the snake leaves his glass. Maybe that is with that same, like, hope of sense of where to be, right? The snake was bred in captivity, bred in the zoo, much like Harry has been bred in the zoo of that house on Privet Drive. But the snake, as soon as the glass disappears, that snake knows where it's going. It has a sense of purpose immediately. And so I agree with you that that also creates 
I wonder if that is part of what's so traumatizing about having a hard childhood is even if you know you're going to age out of the hard childhood, you can't envision a future for yourself that is superior to the one that you are currently in. But Harry seems to have a sense that there's something better than this, just like the snake has a sense that Brazil is waiting for him. And that makes sense to me. You know, thinking back to that 13-year-old me in the boarding school, I knew it would end, you know, that when I was 18, I would leave. I think that promise is really powerful. Yeah. One thing that struck me reading this chapter was that this theme of loneliness was actually in all sorts of unlikely places. And where it struck me most was with the Dursleys. And the moment when Mrs. Fig breaks her leg, she can't take Harry. And so now what, asks Aunt Petunia. And, and you know, she's she's starting to think, well, who else could take Harry? And Vernon suggests we could phone Marge. Uh, but, you know, she hates the boy. What about um, your friend Yvonne? Oh, she's in holiday in Mallorca. That's the end of their list of who they could ask, which to me is, I mean, obviously that says something about the, the, the lack of strong, trusting, loving relationships that they have in this place where by now they've lived at least a decade. They work locally, you know, they're economically secure and they can literally think of two and a half people to call. That maps on the statistics, you know, 25 percent of Americans feel like they have no one to talk to. And I can't remember exactly the number, but it's similar or higher for people who feel they only have one friend. And so there's something about isolation in our culture, which I think this speaks to. And, you know, it puts so much pressure on their partnership and their parenting unit. It just really interestingly mirrored that theme of loneliness or at least being disconnected. I wonder, do you think the fact that of Harry, the fact that they have this secret has added potentially to their sense of loneliness. But there's some sense of self-isolation of, yeah, keeping themselves distant. That's really interesting. The person who I really saw loneliness since we were looking for it in this chapter was Petunia. I just can't imagine how sad I would be if I had spent weeks, possibly months, shopping and wrapping presents and hiding them so my son didn't find them. And arranging a day where my husband could take a day off work so we could all go to the zoo. And and the first thing my son says when he comes down the stairs is counts the number of presents and is like, that's not enough. And then other circumstances conspire so that her nephew, who she hates, has to come a lot like this day that she's just put a ton of effort into just gets completely taken away from her. And that I've just had moments like that where I feel like I put a ton of effort and it goes just completely unacknowledged. And you don't you don't do it for the acknowledgement. But without the acknowledgement, it's just really hard. It feels really lonely. Yeah, it does. You're like, hey, I did this whole thing for you. Do you think elves came in and did that? Somebody put in all that effort. I recently had someone tell me a story in which two of her friends were super helpful to her for a whole day. And I was one of the two friends, and she clearly did not remember that. I only had positive associations with that day. I certainly didn't do it for the gratitude at the end of it. But to have her specifically say how nice that was, but not be able to remember that it was me. And she told you the story. She told me the story. (laughs) It was this lovely thing that had happened to her. And I felt so lonely. I mean, it was amazing how different our experiences in that moment where she was recollecting a time in which she had felt truly loved and taken care of by people who loved her. And I've like never felt more invisible. And I was like, yeah, okay. That was, that was me. You're welcome. It's just so lonely. So I, I don't know. I really felt for Petunia. 
Every week we are going to engage with the text with a spiritual practice, and this week again we're going to do Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a practice that literally just means sacred reading, and we are going to do our own spin on it. We're not doing a super traditional version of the Christian practice of Lectio Divina. Yeah, so Lectio Divina consists of four layers the way we do it. The first thing that you need to do is to choose a random passage in the text. You literally just flip through the pages, put your finger on the page and find a sentence or a phrase that you land on. And the idea is that you read it a number of times and you let the text kind of marinate in your brain, in your imagination, and you read it at four different layers. And the first is just thinking about it narratively. So what happens in the story? Who are the characters? Second, to think allegorically about what's happening. So are there stories or symbols or images that remind you of, of, you know, an interesting parallel in some way? Third, to think about kind of reflection on our own lives. Are there experiences that we've had that mirror what's going on in the text? And then fourth and finally, we want a sort of invitation from the text. Is there an action or a thought for us to carry forward having engaged in this practice? So... Let me see if I can find a good passage. Okay, and to be clear, he's literally just flipping through and going to put his finger somewhere. Where did we land? So this is in the middle of chapter two, The Vanishing Glass. 36, he said, looking up at his mother and father. That's two less than last year. So Vanessa, talk us through what's happening narratively here. 36, he said, looking up at his mother and father. That's two less than last year. So literally what's happening is that Dudley has just counted his number of presents, and he is announcing the number and then looking at his parents and telling them that it is fewer than last year and implying that he is disappointed. Already, they have failed at his birthday. Casper, step two on an allegorical level. Are there any images that come to mind? Is there anything about this sentence that pops out at you? The words that really strike me as I read it again are mother and father, especially the way that he's looking up at his mother and father, not looking up to his mother and father. For me, Dudley has this power over his parents that it's certainly expressed here where, you know, he's not happy. His parents respond by getting him more of what he wants, two more presents, no problem. And you see that a number of times in this chapter that really Dudley has control over the household in a way that you wouldn't really want a 10 or an 11 year old to be running a home. It's funny that you read it like that. I read that as opposite, that it's a moment in which Dudley is certainly capable of manipulating his parents, but I see it as a moment in which Dudley is actually realizing his powerlessness. He's looking up at his parents, and Dudley is going to lose a lot of battles in this chapter, right? He doesn't want Harry to go to the zoo with him, and yet Harry comes to the zoo. I think that Petunia and Vernon go out of their way to give Dudley a sense of control in the world. God, I sound like a really bad pop psychologist, but, you know, control is taken out of their hands when Harry was dropped on him. So they're constantly trying to make up for that. But I think that this is a moment in which we see that Dudley does not actually have that control. And I think that those moments are powerful, right, where you feel as though you have control over your own life. And then it becomes very clear that something random can happen and your day goes into disarray just over the fact that your cell phone battery died. Very quickly, the illusion of control can be taken from you. The image that really stuck out to me was the number 36. So I'm Jewish, and Judaism has this great tradition that I know very little about, which is that every letter has a numerical equivalent. And 18 is considered the most powerful number in Judaism because the word equivalent is chai, which is yod hey, and it means life. So 
Oh, like L'Chaim. Yes, like L'Chaim, exactly. Awesome. You get Jew points for today, Casper. So 18 is one of the very few numbers that I like really know my multiplications on because it's considered such a lucky number. And 36 is double high. Often in Judaism, you'll give gifts in $36 increments. You know, if you're writing a check to a bar mitzvah kid, you give them $36. Double high, the number 36 is really a blessing that gets offered. It's I wish you sort of two lives, right? I wish you abundance. So he's being offered abundance. He's being offered, you know, from a Jewish lens, the most generous thing you can offer someone. And yet that's not enough for Dudley. It strikes me that Petunia is, well, both parents here are are showing their love through gift giving. I think in some ways the Dursleys know that, you know, at some point this story about Harry is going to come out. And they want to preserve this idea that, you know, Dudley's life is going to get better every year and it is going to be more perfect and wonderful and he's going to get everything that he wants because that's how they know how to show their love. I mean, I think in some ways it is it's very well-intended parenting. They know that minimum acne is in Dudley's near future, right? I mean, they know that being a teenager is hard. And so the fact that they're trying to start the year with like, and there's even more abundance and there's even more abundance and you want more, well, the, the road will always rise to meet you and your expectations. It is very poorly disseminated. But I, I do think that, I mean, wanting to give your child everything is not, it's not a bad intention. Which I think is challenging because the role of capitalism, of of buying gifts, of of buying things is going to be very, very present as we read this book, particularly in Going to Diagon Alley. The role of consumption as shaping relationships is really crucial in, in this first book. And that's really strong here in this birthday scene where the Dursley trying to show their love, trying to kind of give a sense of connection to their son Dudley through these kind of empty gifts. Yeah. So we've read it narratively, we've read it allegorically. The third layer of Lectio Divina is to think about the reflection it has on our lives. So what part of our own experience, what part of our own life do we see in this text? I'm curious as to what you think about birthdays, because birthdays are huge in these novels. We meet the magical world, right, as Harry turns 11, and we really trace Harry throughout his birthdays. Well, I I grew up uh, one of four kids, and there was much to celebrate together, other holidays of the year. But for me, what was special about a birthday is that it it was just for one of us. And there's some amazing family photos where the, you know, the birthday boy or birthday girl is so happy and wearing a birthday crown and their chair is decorated. And the three other kids are like looking with just full on envy. But it was it was a moment that you were celebrated for who you were. And, you know, that there, there were all sorts of traditions like, you know, we would sing together. And you got to choose what meal we would eat that evening. And you know, I'd be carried down the stairs by my dad, having waited for breakfast to be ready and there'd be a flag hanging next to my bed and a present. And so it was just a really special day that I guess really affirmed that sense of belonging, which in in opposition to this theme of loneliness, that was a real moment where just because we did the same thing for everyone's birthday, you knew that you belonged. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because I remember as a kid, I mean, I had depression issues as a kid, so <laughs> birthdays felt very futile to me. I, people would come out and celebrate and give you gifts, and you're like, I did nothing to deserve this. All I did was exist. And that sounds like it was a lot of effort for my mom and very little for me, whereas like I wanted to be celebrated and adored for my accomplishments. And now looking at it, it's actually my birthday has come to mean more to me. 
because it actually is the only time in which people celebrate you for existing and sort of saying that's enough. And so I do think birthdays are nice that it's literally just a, I'm glad you're here and that you've survived another year. It also puts a premium on survival. I mean, that's nice, too, because it's saying that survival isn't futile, right? Well, and for Harry, that's quite an achievement uh, in, the, in the next couple of books. You know, the thing that strikes me is that I also counted my presents growing up. You know, I the only difference was I didn't remember what the number was last year. So I feel like that's where Dudley has a one up on me. You're but, impressed by his accounting skills. Yeah, seriously. This guy's, you know, set for the spreadsheet world. But I, I remember feeling super connected to what that number of presents was. And, and it reminds me so much of this feeling that I think I still have of that every year is going to be better. It's a story I tell myself that, you know, even though something bad happened, you know, I broke both my legs a couple of years ago and I was like, oh no, but it was still a great learning experience. Or, you know, I had three months off work. So actually it was something good. I guess I, I live with the hope that every year will be better. And and I think here it's expressed in the number of gifts, but I I still hold on to that a little bit. And I'm not sure if it's wise. I have at a certain point committed myself to thinking that every year is better. And I think that that is an acute feeling for me because I live in a freshman dorm as sort of a house mom. And so I, I live with 18-year-olds. And I, this will be my fifth year doing it. And so it's that great Matthew McConaughey line in Days and Confuse of I get older, but they stay the same age. And so because I'm constantly around people who aren't aging, right, my students are always 18, I feel like I'm aging exponentially. So I have really committed myself in the last few years to think of aging as a gift. I like myself better every year. I feel like I have a handle on who I am and I care less what other people think of me. In the best of circumstances, I'm going to have bad years. Even if tragic things don't happen, horrible things are going to happen. And it's not that aging isn't hard. I'm turning 34, and I realized that, you know, five years ago, I probably spent zero minutes a day putting ointments on. And now I spend, like, <laughs> minutes, minutes a day putting various ointments on. And I, I make sure that I pack and travel with my ointments so aging, it's a real thing, and there, there's a process of mourning that comes along with it. But I think it's important to think that every year is better. And I don't actually think it's true. I just think it's important to behave as if it was true. So, Vanessa, the fourth and final phase is one of invitation. Yes. What action is this calling us to? What do we feel invited to by this quote? And so I'm going to read it one more time. 36, he said, looking up at his mother and father. That's two less than last year. Is there any action that you feel called to with this line? For me, it's a real sense of appreciating my parents, just to thank them. You know, I think back so much to all of the care and effort they put into each of our birthdays in different ways. And I haven't even talked about the crazy inventive parties that they created, like treasure hunts around the entire village and things like that, which, you know, they were doing on top of everything else they were already doing to make us feel special and seen and that we were loved. How about you, Vanessa? I'm going to stick with the meaning of the number 36 to me, which I think is calling out that there is abundance even when we don't feel as though there is. I will often feel like 
oh, I can't take up too much of that person's time or, oh, what if I run out, right? I'm always feeling rushed. And I wonder how much of that is tied into feeling like nothing is enough. And 36 presents is more than enough. And, you know, an hour with a friend is enough. And I think that that's just something I have to start reminding myself Uh, So I I feel called to recognizing abundance when it's right in front of me rather than constantly feeling like everything is scarce. Mm. We love to close every episode by blessing one of the characters to offer them maybe something that they would need to hear in this moment in the story. My blessing is for Mrs. Fig. She's a little hidden in this chapter, but she's so present in a way that I think she is for Harry as well. You know, she's she's always there at a distance. And even though she's kind of weird and smells like cabbage and, you know, has all these cats, she is one glimpse of safety, of consistency, and if nothing else, of friendship. I guess I want to offer a blessing for her and for everyone who is always offering a hand of friendship across age, across difference, even across interests. Like the fact that you're willing to give me the time of day just to hear about how I'm doing and offer me a living room and a piece of cake, however old it is. That's such a generous act and deserves our gratitude and blessing. So I'm uh, I'm grateful for Mrs. Fig. I'm going to stay committed to trying to always bless a woman. And I am going to offer my blessing for Aunt Marge. There's a moment in which it becomes clear that Harry's going to have to come to the zoo because Mrs. Fig has broken her leg. And so Uncle Vernon says, we could phone Marge. And Petunia answers, don't be silly, Vernon. She hates the boy. And they obviously don't care if Harry spends a day with someone that he hates or hates him. So to me, that shows that Aunt Marge has great boundaries and is, like, (laughs) willing to take care of other people's kids if she likes them and then be like, I don't like that kid. I just think women get taken advantage of in terms of their generosity and asking favors and especially around I love all my little, you know, nieces and nephews. But not all childless women want to help raise other people's kids. We're not all just yearning to raise other people's children. I really respect Aunt Marge's, you know, boundary setting. And I offer a blessing to all of the women out there who feel like they're asked too much And you don't even need to ask Marge, and she doesn't even have to say no. She's made her feelings clear. And so I bless Aunt Marge for that. I love that you're blessing Marge. And I mean, one of the joys of rereading these texts is that we get to discover and imagine about the characters who are a couple steps outside of the main action. And, you know, there is a world out there of people who are just beyond our imagination every day, and they deserve our blessings. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by me, Vanessa Zoltan, Casper Turkile, and the amazing Ariana Nettleman. Our music was created by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 3, The Letters from No One, through the theme of fear. And we hope you'll join the conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, Tumblr, and everywhere where you may find your social media. Just look for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Please also feel free to visit our website at www.harrypottersacredtext.com where you can leave us a message and tell us your thoughts about any episode and how you think we're doing. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And if you're really feeling it, feel free to leave us a review. We'd like to thank CJ Hoke for donating to our Kickstarter. Graham Ball for all his technical support. Rebecca and Charlie Ludley for supporting this podcast since the beginning. Together with Shane, Lauren, and Rufus. And of course, we'd like to thank our Harry Potter and a Sacred Text reading group who started this adventure with us. We'll see you next week. Thank you. 
Hello, my name is Casper Takail, and I am British. I say things like herb, aluminium, and laboratory. <laughs> Hello, my name is Casper Takail, and I am British. I say things like herb, aluminium, and laboratory. <laughs>